Well, as we have come to the end of a year and the beginning of a new year, certainly you sometimes look back over last year and uh, probably here at Mount Calvary Church, the most controversial message that was preached last year was not preached by me, it was preached by Pastor John. And uh, we have talked a lot about that message, so I wanted to just for a few minutes revisit the message on drinking. Uh, I received a Christmas card, and in that Christmas card, it even alluded to the fact that uh, we think it's okay to take a a drink. Um, Somebody came up to me about a month ago and said, Pastor, since you think it's okay to drink, would you ever consider having wine for communion. Since we're having communion today, I thought this might be a good time to address this. I will tell you the only time in my life, other than when my neighbor, who was babysitting me, gave me a drink of beer. (laughs) I told you that story before. The only time I've ever had wine in my life was uh, on a missions trip in Germany, where they gave a common cup down each side of the uh, church, And when I took a drink of it, I thought, oh my, this is not grape juice, this is wine. So for me, the only time I've ever had wine in my life was at communion. And uh, so I want to circle back and take five minutes. Pastor John and I have certainly, since that message, talked often. We have searched the scriptures. uh, And let me just give you what I have come up with. When you look at the scripture, I'm, I, whether it's wine or strong drink, let me, let me give you what the scripture says. 59 times it's used, accepted as a normal part of culture. 33 times it's symbolic, like the wine of his wrath. 27 times wine is called a blessing from God. 25 times it's, use in offering, it's used in offering and sacrifices. Uh, 20 times it talks about the loss of wine as an example of a curse from God. Uh, 19 times it talks about the examples of abuse of alcohol. Um, 21 times it talks about vows of abstinence. Um, 17 times there's warnings against abuse of alcohol. It's used nine times as gifts between people. It's uh, used five times as comparison, like X is better than wine, and you can fill in the X there. There's false accusations of drunkenness four times, rules for for selecting deacons, wine's talked about three times, Uh, miscellaneous use four times, abstinence and defense to weak conscience one time. Uh, It gives you a total of 247 times wine or strong drink is referred to in Scripture. Uh, Out of those 247 times, 16% of the verses are negative, 59% are positive, 25% of those verses are neutral. That is the breakdown. I have looked at every verse. I have studied every verse. Let me tell you the conclusion that I have come to. Um, And basically... I don't think it's a sin to have a glass of wine, but let me give you four reasons why I'll never drink and probably would encourage you not to drink. Let me give you my reasons. First of all, because of my conscience. Your conscience might be different. Romans 14, 14 says, Nothing is unclean, but unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For me, I believe alcohol is unclean. Number two, 
The reason I'll never drink is alcohol is a mind-altering drug. And because of that, I'll never drink. And I would encourage you the same. Third, because it's addictive. I struggle enough with food, which is addictive to me. So uh, I'm, because it's addictive, I'll never do it. And then number four, to make a social statement. Over 10 million Americans, 10% of all adult uh, drinkers are estimated to be alcoholics. One family in three is estimated, uh, is estimated to be affected in some way by a drinking problem. The Institute of uh, Medicine and the National Academy of Science estimates that each year alcoholism and alcohol abuse in the United States cost society from 40 to 60 billion dollars due to lost production, health and medical care, motor vehicle accidents, violent crime, and social programs that respond to alcoholic problems. Others have estimated costs to be 100 billion per year. In the United States, 97,000 deaths annually are related to excessive drinking. One half of all traffic fatalities and one third of all traffic injuries are related to the abuse of alcohol. One-third of all suicides, one-third of all uh, mental health disorders are estimated to be associated with serious alcohol abuse. And the toll does not limit itself to adults. It's been estimated that there are over 3 million problem drinkers between the ages of 14 and 17 in the United States. Clearly, alcohol has a devastating effect on society in general and millions of unfortunate families in particular. Just for that reason... I'll not drink, and I would encourage you not to. Is it a sin? No, it's not. But those four reasons to me are good enough reasons. The other one, when it makes a social statement, it makes a social statement to my kids. I've always lived this. What I do in moderation, those under me will do in excess. I've always lived by that. What I do in moderation, those under me will do in excess. So I want to be an example to my kids. That was a reason that we never drank in our home. We never partook of or have partaken of that, and we never will. Now, saying all that, um, I, I wanted to go back, since that was a controversial statement, I'll tell you that we will never have uh, wine in the communion service here, at least as long as I'm pastor here. I can't tell you what's going to be 10, 15, 20 years down the road, but I can tell you as long as I'm pastor here, we will not. You know, the last thing that John said is I've gone back and I've listened to that message quite a few times. And like I said, we've talked about this message, him and I, more than we've talked about anything. Um, is this. The whole thing that he made at the end is I'm sure that we have some people who sit in this room who maybe have wine with their meal. The whole thing with John's thing at the end was we should not judge them for that. Anymore, you should judge me for deciding not to drink for the reasons that I gave you. And uh, that was the, his whole ending of his message. Is, um, is, it, is it wrong? And even in his message, John said that he himself, so we can say that our staff does not drink alcoholic beverages. It's not the way it is in every church. I talked this over with my son-in-law in Texas this week. And he shared with me that his pastor and youth pastor drink. Um, so here I can say our staff does not and we will not. So I wanted to circle back. That was the most controversial message. When you get somebody write you a note in your Christmas card, you know, you know that that caused some things. And uh, so I wanted to circle back. I wanted to tell you 
you know, again, I wanted to point out those scriptures to you. Um, I wanted to give you the four reasons, again, because of my conscience. Alcohol is a mind-altering drug. Alcohol is addictive. And to make a social statement. I think those are strong reasons why it's probably best that we don't drink at all. Let me go on to Romans where we left off. I want to review a little bit this morning and bring us back where we were uh, in Romans. And again, it's going to take us years to get through this book if we continue to go at this pace, but that's okay. We're in no hurry to get through this. Maybe the rapture will happen, which would be a great thing. If so, then Dr. Sheard will finish out the series for us. Just kidding. Just kidding. He'll get, he'll, get, he'll get even, don't worry. He'll look for his chance. <laughs> so, Romans chapter 3, we're going to get there in a few minutes. But I wanted to do, because it has been, we were in the book of Romans for two months, and then we took our Advent series break. And again, we're going to come back to the Romans uh, the book of Romans for January and February, and then in March we're going to take another break and we're going to deal with some family issues, uh, the husband and wife and, and those type of issues that deal with the family, as John and I have been praying about our messages for the next year. So for the next two months, though, we will be in the book of Romans this week and next week, and then we'll take a break a little bit because two weeks from today... Uh, we have a great treat. I see. I know you've seen it in your bulletin, and uh, we're excited about that special Sunday. But let me just review a little bit. Let me go back to chapter 1 and talk about the messenger of God. Look at the first verse. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And we've already established, and you know this, Paul is the writer of the book of Romans. And he wants to start off, he's never been to Rome, he's never met these people, but God has given him a love for these people, a desire for these people. And so he starts off just establishing who he is. And first of all, he is a servant of Jesus Christ. And it is the strongest word for servant that we find in the word of God. It's the the strongest. He is a bond slave. He says, I am a bond slave to Jesus Christ. And every one of us who sit in this auditorium today ought to be able to say that. I am a bond servant of Jesus Christ. I am a slave to Jesus Christ. I'm not a slave to sin. I'm not a slave to this world. I am a slave to Jesus Christ. And a slave's bidding is to do the will of the master. And every one of us, as we start this new year, we ought to say with Paul, in 2015, I will be a bond slave. I will be a servant to Jesus Christ. He says he is called to be an apostle. He tells you in that, that I am chosen. He had been chosen by God. He was personally commissioned by God, and he had seen the Lord. So he was an apostle. He was separated to the gospel. And we, we know he was separated from his mother's womb. He was separated on the road to Damascus. He was separated at Antioch when uh, the church uh, called him to the work. And the Holy Spirit came upon him and anointed him. And so he was separated to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in the very first verse of Romans, Paul sets the tone for us of the writer of this book. 
And then we talked about the most important verses in Romans are found in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And look at what God's Word says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes and the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. These two verses, Pastor John preached and talked about the gospel. The gospel is the good news. It's the good news that we as sinners are condemned. And we're going to see that again this morning as we get into the book of Romans. It talks about it. That we are condemned to an eternity in hell without Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. That Jesus Christ loved you and loved me so much that he came to this earth, born in a manger, lived 33 years, years and then died for your sin and my sin on the cross was buried again and buried and um, rose again the third day victorious over sin and death that's the good news and the good news is Romans chapter 8 therefore there is now what no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and every person ought to say "Woo, amen that's great I'm no longer condemned because of the gospel of Jesus Christ because I've accepted the gospel it says in that is the power of God. The word dynamo, it means to blow apart. In a sense, it's blowing apart the old life and giving us a new life in Jesus Christ. Somebody once said, if the church has lost its power, it's because it's lost the gospel. The reason that we exist as a church is really for the gospel. The reason that we exist not only is to build up one another, but it's to reach a lost and dying world. The reason that Paul left his home in Atlanta, left his family, and gone to Bosnia, it's for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the reason missionaries do what they do. It's for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you this. We never get past the gospel. We never get over the gospel. We need the gospel every day. Every day I need the gospel. Every day I'm coming back to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It wasn't when I was a kid at 13 years old when I walked the aisle and accepted Jesus Christ, my Savior, in an evening service at the First Baptist Church of Newcastle. It wasn't then Dick Vaughn could say, okay, that's it. I don't need the gospel anymore. As a Christian, I need the gospel every day. We never get past the gospel the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Romans is really all about, the gospel. And so then Paul wants to begin to show us why we need the gospel so desperately. And so he sets up a courtroom, if you would, where God is the judge Paul is the, uh, the prosecuting attorney, and we, man, is on trial because of our sin. And, and Paul says that we live under condemnation. We're condemned to death. We're condemned to hell. We're condemned to eternal separation from God. We are sinners. 
And so then he spends the next part of Romans fleshing this out. And he basically says there are four types of sinners. Four types of sinners that we find here in the book of Romans. He says there is the moral sinner that he deals with in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. You know, the moral sinner, he does not judge himself. He's condemned by God's truth. He finds righteousness in his deeds. That moral sinner thinks, listen, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty moral person. So certainly God's not going to send me to hell. And then there is the religious man. The religious man. First of all, I missed the first one. I'm sorry. Is the heathen sinner. The heathen sinner that Paul deals with in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And uh, you'll remember that Paul brings it to the witness stand when he's dealing with the heathen sinner. There's two reasons why the heathen sinner ends up in hell. First of all, creation itself says there's a God. Secondly, his own conscience tells him that there is a God. And so when Paul, in this great courtroom scene, when he brings the heathen to the stand, he reminds the heathen, listen, you can say, well, I've never heard about Jesus. How is it fair that I die and go to hell? And Paul says, listen, it's fair because God has built within you a conscience as God has given you creation itself that shares that there is a God. And so he deals with that in Romans chapter 1 when he's dealing with the heathen. And then the moral center. And then we get to Revelation chapter 2, verses 17, through what we're going to look at today. Chapter 3, verse 8, he deals with the religious center. And the religious person, really, he is talking about, he is represented by a Jew or a Jewish person. Because that's who were, the, in a sense, the really religious people of Jesus' time. Those were the ones that Jesus would be argument, arguing with. And here in, in Romans chapter 2, the religious man, again, the Jewish sinner, the Jewish religious person, would say there are three reasons. There are three reasons I shouldn't go to hell. There are three reasons I shouldn't be separated from God. There are three reasons I shouldn't be condemned. And he gives those to you in chapter 2. And here they are. Number one, he says, because we have the law. We have the law. We are, we're the givers of the law. It was through us that the law was given. Number two, we have been circumcised. So how, how can you, because I've been circumcised. You know, I've gone through this ritual of circumcision. And then number three, I am a descendant of Abraham. I was born in the line of Abraham. I am a Jew by birth. Those three reasons, God, you can't send me to hell. God, those three reasons, I'm not separated from you. I am a religious person, and I practice my religion. I try to live out the law. In fact, I live out the law so well that I've added to the law. That's how good I am at it. I'm such a good religious person, man, I follow everything. I'm circumcised. I follow even to the point that, listen, I'll give up things for you, God. In chapter chapter 2, Paul deals with all three of these Jewish arguments. The law cannot save you. And he reminds them, listen, you break the law all the time. You might think you keep the law, but in reality, you break it all the time. And he deals with how they break the law in chapter 2. And then, he, and then he says the circumcision cannot save you. He says you break the law and become uncircumcised. 
So he says, you reverse your circumcision by breaking the law, he points out to them. And let me just remind you here that no right, whether it's baptism, whether it's church membership, whether it's keeping some standard in your life, is going to get you into heaven. If you're here today and you think because you're a member of Mount Calvary Church, you're going to heaven, you got it all wrong. If you think because you keep some law or some standard that you're going to go to heaven, you've got it all wrong. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. And then the third is birth cannot save you. You must be born inward for salvation. You must be born twice, not only physically, but spiritually. See, the Jewish mindset was simply this. I've been born physically as a Jew, so that's good enough to get me into heaven. And Paul comes back and says, no, that will not get you into heaven. You must be born a second time. You must be reborn. That's the only way you're getting to heaven. And maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe both your parents were saved. Maybe in your lineage, maybe salvation goes to your grandparents and your great-grandparents. But let me tell you again, your lineage is not going to get you into heaven. Just because your parents were saved doesn't mean you're saved. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this brings us to chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Paul knows how the Jewish mind works. He knows that they're argumentative. He knows that they like to debate. And to get along, get a Jewish person, you'll find that out. They're good at debating. They're good at arguing with you. And they, they like that. And so Paul knows how the Jewish mind works. Um, and that he's going to deal with them. And so the way this is, is he deals with their arguments, with their objections. And you could sort of line it out like this. Verse 1 is an objection. Verse 2, Paul gives an answer. Verse 3 is an objection. Verse 4 is Paul's answer. Verse 5 is an objection. Verse 6 is Paul's answer. Verse 7 is an objection. And verse 8 is Paul's answer. So what Paul's doing before the Jewish person even brings the argument to them, Paul says, you know what? I'm going to bring this argument to you. I know what you're thinking, so let me just go back and let me deal with what you're thinking right away. And so we're going to do that this morning. Very quickly, we're just going to look through these four arguments um, that Paul wants to bring out that the Jewish mind is thinking. He knows how their mind works, and uh, so he, he's going to deal with it. And, and basically, there's really only one argument. It just comes in four different objections, um, but it's found in verse 1. And uh, look at that verse. He says, here's the Jewish mind, then what advantage has the Jew? You know, and again, this is, there's no, bro, there's no you know, chapter division when the book of Romans was written. It was one long letter. And so by putting this here, we might think we're at a different thought, but we're really continuing from chapter 2. He's still dealing with the religious sinner, trying to show that the religious person is going to go to hell. And so he says, listen, so the Jew, this is the argument of the Jew. Well, then what advantage? You, you've just told me, Paul, my circumcision means nothing. My lineage means nothing. Keeping the law means nothing. So what really advantage is there to being a Jew, Paul? Come on. 
Come on, give it to me, Paul. And Paul says, now some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, what advantage is there to being a Jew? Just like some of us say, well, you know, there has to be an advantage to being a member of Mount Calvary Church. No? Paul's saying, listen, let me just remind you that there is somewhat. He says, because they say, what advantage or what is the value of circumcision? And Paul says in verse 2, here's his answer, much in every way. He says there is some advantages to being Jewish to begin with. Let me just give you one, Paul says. You're sitting there thinking, so what advantage do I have? He said, let me give you one. He says, here's a big one. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He's saying, listen, let me tell you something that's really great. Let me tell you something that you have. Let me tell you an advantage that you have over the Gentiles. You, your people, were given the word of God, the oracles here. It's talking about the prophetic prophetic elements of Scripture. He says the, the Jews had been entrusted with God's revelation of himself in the Old Testament. Because what? They were Jewish people who wrote, who God spoke into their mind, and who, through God, were inspired to write the Old Testament. Your people are the ones who God gave the prophecies. All those prophecies of Jesus coming were given to your people, and you missed it. You missed it. You're still looking for the Messiah. You, but you missed the promise of Christ, the coming of the Messiah. If anybody should have known that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Christ, you should have gotten a Jewish people because... It was your people who wrote it down. That's what Paul's telling them. It is a privilege to be a Jew. Why? Because your people, your people were given the oracles, were given the prophetic scripture that prophesied that your Messiah would come. And the sad thing is the Jews are still looking today. If you go to a Jewish Seder and you sit through the Seder, one of the things they do in the middle of the Seder, there's always one seat left in the Seder empty because they're hoping that the Messiah will come during the, during the Seder. And one of the things they do is they'll send their kids to the door to open the front door and to look. And they'll say, has the Messiah come? And the kids will come back disappointed. No, the Messiah didn't come. And they'll say... Well, maybe next year, maybe next year he will come. And the Jews totally miss the point that the Messiah has come. They totally miss the point that their own people prophesied through the scriptures that he would come. So Paul says, listen, there is an advantage to being Jewish. You had the privilege of receiving the word of God You had the privilege of writing down the prophecies, and yet you don't even believe it. You don't even believe it. So, the Jewish mind is working. Look at verses 3 and 4. Okay, we'll give you that one, Paul. We'll give you that argument, Paul. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? So there, here, here's, here's what Paul says you're thinking. 
First, you've asked me, is there an advantage to being a Jew? And I tell you, there is an advantage. It's because you've been giving the oracles, you've been giving the prophetic scriptures, you've been told about the Messiah, and you've missed it. And so now the Jewish mind comes back and says, okay, Paul, we'll give you that. We have the oracles. We'll give you that one, Paul. But what if we don't believe those oracles? What if we don't believe what the Word of God says, Paul? You know, we know Paul, we know this, Paul, we, we believe God has redeemed us whether we believe or not, is what they're saying. Why? Because God has to keep his promises to the Jewish people. So even if we don't believe those oracles, because what God has promised us, he has to redeem us. Because we're his chosen people. And you go back into the Old Testament, there are hundreds, there are numerous scriptures that talk about the blessings that God is going to give to the Jewish people, to the Jewish nation. And, the, and here's what they're thinking. Here's what the Jewish mind is thinking and Paul's saying. What you're saying is this, is because God promised us these things, he has to redeem us. He has to love us. And take us to heaven because we're his chosen people. Let me tell you, listen, God never promised salvation apart from repentance and personal faith. Yes, he did promise many blessings to the Jewish people, but he didn't promise them salvation apart from repentance and faith. And you go back into the Old Testament and you see all of the sacrifices that were made, that were made for sin. You see the yearly sacrifice that was made for the people. God said, listen, even in the Old Testament, it's through what? Blood. It's through the shedding of blood. It's through belief. It's through righteousness that man has a relationship with God. Not just because God said, I'm going to bless you. Any more than God says, listen, those who bless Israel, I will bless them. That's like us saying, you know, well, listen, America's going to be saved and we're not going to be condemned by God as long as we bless Israel. Same type of mentality. And so they're saying, listen, God has to redeem us. And look what Paul's answer is in verse 4. By no means, no way, old King James, God forbid. That's a, that's a favorite phrase of Paul's here. We're, we're going to see, remember, remember he says it in Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What does Paul say? No way, no means, God forbid. You can't do that. You can't continue to sin. And we're going to see that here in just a moment because that's going to be part of their argument. God says, no way. God's faithfulness cannot fail. Even if every man in the world is a liar, God will still remain true. So he says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, let God be true though everyone were a liar, as it is written. And then he quotes, Paul quotes here from Psalms 51.4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul answers, listen, there's no way. You know, God has the right to judge. Man might lie. God doesn't lie. He's truthful. 
Because he says that thou mayest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. God, when he speaks, is justified in saying what he says, and he's clear in his judgment. So don't question God here. God doesn't have to redeem you. David's song says, God is righteous when he condemns man. But the Jewish mind, again, clever but wicked, twists this verse. He twists this verse around to get to his next argument in verse 5 and 6. Paul, again, realizing about the Jewish mind, he says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I, and Paul says, I speak in a human way. In other words, I'm speaking facetiously here. And basically what Paul's saying is, here, here's what the Jewish mind is thinking. Here is the argument here. If I sin, and my sin shows the righteousness of God in a clear light, how can God blame me for my sin? That's the argument. If I sin... And my sin makes God's righteousness clear. And how can God blame me for my sin? Because really, my sin is a good thing. Because it's what? It's showing God's righteousness. Go again to Romans 6, the verse I just quoted. What did I say? What shall we say then? Shall I continue to sin? It's okay for me to sin because when I sin, what happens? God's grace abounds. It just keeps flowing. And that's the reality of it. It is true. When I sin, God's grace is greater than my sin. There's no sin that God's grace can't take care of, but that's not an excuse to sin. That's not an excuse to sin, is it? Because, you know what? Hey, I can sin, and I'll just first John it. First John 1, 9, if I confess my sins, he's what? Faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So what's the big deal about sin anyway? That's what the Jewish mind is saying. What, what's the big deal? If I sin, it's just going to make God's righteousness clear. If our unrighteousness makes God's clear, the righteous, if our unrighteousness makes clear the righteousness of God, he would be unrighteous to take vengeance on us. If I sin and it makes God's righteousness clear, it makes us see God, it focuses his righteousness more, then he would be wrong to judge me. Again, Paul comes back with that same answer in verse 6. By no means, no way, God forbid. For then how could God judge the world? For then how shall God judge the world? Every Jew... Every Jew believed in judgment. They did. So Paul's saying if God cannot judge a sinner because he sinned, his sin makes the righteousness of God more conspicuous, then he cannot deal with any sinner. It gives a clear slate for every Jew and every Gentile, which simply means no judgment at all. And so the Jew is really arguing against himself here because the Jew did believe in the judgment of God. But the Jew loved this argument so much that Paul knew he'd pursue it one step further. And that's our last argument this morning. In verse 7 and 8, it says, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come? 
As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Here's the last. Let's do good so that evil may come. Paul takes the argument to its logical conclusion is simply this, and let me tell you, our society lives by this today. The end justifies the means. The end justifies the means. It doesn't matter what I do, and sometimes I even see Christians, it doesn't matter what I do, just so it turns out good at the end. It does matter what we do. Everything we do matters. This is what they said about Paul, because he taught salvation by grace, not by works. They said, see, you know, you teach this thing of salvation by grace, and, and we believe in works, Paul, and so works are important to get us to heaven. Um, and if works are important, then you're saying it's really okay to sin, because then we can just have grace. And they don't understand it. But Paul turns it back on them with his answer, whose condemnation is just? It's the last statement. There is con- the condemnation is just. God's condemnation is just. He has the right to judge. Here's the conclusion. Are the Jews better than the Gentiles? No, they are both sinners, all under sin. And God is right to condemn us and judge us. And it doesn't end there because in chapter, as we go on through this chapter, as we'll see next week, we're going to see that the whole world is under condemnation. There's nobody that escapes. Everybody is condemned to die. So what's two lessons in this portion of Scripture, these short eight verses this morning? First of all, just as the Jewish people trusted in their laws, circumcision, and birth today, we can't trust in anything but grace. We can't trust in our parents and our baptism and our church membership and our good works on keeping the law. None of that leads to salvation. And secondly, this. For a professed Christian to live in continue unrepented sin is a certain mark that he's not saved. To be a Christian is to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ and genuinely desire to serve him. As Jude makes it indisputably clear, the person who tries to justify his sin by pursuing on God's, pursuing on God's grace is ungodly and denies Christ. And to sin and to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to sin, whatever it is, and I'm going to do it, and I don't care what you think, God, because your word says, if I confess it, you have to forgive it. And if that's your mindset, you better go back and you better look at your salvation. I don't think anybody who's truly saved is going to say, you know what, God, I'm just going to live in sin, and I really don't care what you think, because in the end, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. You better go back and look at your salvation. Because that's not what Scripture teaches. Paul's final response to his slanderous critics was short but to the point. Listen, God has the right to condemn you to hell. Because why? You're a sinner. And as a Christian, I need to make sure. The Bible says, listen, to look and to make sure of my faith. And if you're sitting here today and you can sin and sin and sin and it doesn't bother you, you better go back and make sure you're saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this portion of Scripture. Thank you for the privilege that we have to open up your word. Help us to realize, Lord, 
nothing apart from grace, nothing apart from the gospel, gets us into eternity with you. Not our good works, not our lineage, not our religiosity. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are all sinners, as we'll see next week. In your name we pray, amen.